At every level, um, you, you just see how hard it is. We own it. The report was fair, but it was tough. And, um, you know, we've got work to do and, and we're going to re-earn the trust. What I saw in the front line is this urge to serve our veterans at whatever cost. And we've got to realize that, that, that those folks were overwhelmed by this incredibly complex, unrelenting um, virus. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. This August and September, the seven long-term care facilities run by the Missouri Veterans Commission experienced a nightmare. After months of successfully holding the coronavirus at bay, the homes suffered a, quote, prolonged and rapidly escalating outbreak of COVID-19. By November, 103 residents were dead. Now that number has now grown to 142 deaths from COVID-19, and it's the subject of a new report from the law firm Armstrong Teasdale. The report looks at what went wrong and how to keep such a tragedy from ever happening again. And joining me today to talk about it is Tim Noonan. He is the chairman of the Missouri Veterans Commission. So Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. So, Tim, we really appreciate you coming here to talk to us about this. Um, this report was really interesting to read. And as it covers here, early on in the pandemic, um, the Missouri veterans' homes seemed to be models of protection from this awful virus. So many nursing homes suffered large numbers of casualties. And initially, yours didn't at all. When did that change? You know, that, that changed uh, in mid to late September, but I think uh, context really matters. We put a plan in place um, led by our executive director who had tremendous amount of background in federal emergency management, ran that for the state. Her name was Grace Link. We anticipated uh, being hit very hard. We put a plan in place. We put quarantine in place. We inspected. We trained. Um, I inspected those sites personally. Mm -hmm. On the 7th of March, when the first case hit in the state, we already had a plan in place to lock down our homes the next day, and we did that. I remember exactly where I was sitting when we made that decision. It seemed aggressive on the 8th of March. Mm -hmm. um, we limited access, um, and we did a tremendous job uh, keeping this virus uh, at bay uh, until it really o overwhelmed us. Yeah. I mean, it is remarkable, really, when you think of so how hard hit so many other nursing homes were. But then once things changed, it seems like they changed so quickly. Um, and you've called the situation a tragedy on many levels. How so? I, I just got back. I The report came out... Um, and I, I, I didn't feel personally that I had enough context as the chairman of the commission to really understand what was happening. So uh, Monday morning, uh, I drove to all seven homes in the state, as well as uh, our headquarters in Jefferson City, because I wanted to see for myself what was, was happening. I wanted to hear what was happening on the front lines. And, and I think that, that that is true. It's a tragedy. Um, the... the for every family that's lost uh, a loved one, um, it, our heart 
uh, just breaks. Mm-hmm. Our, you know, our heart also breaks for the frontline caregivers. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been asked to shoulder a burden that is just un, uncomprehensible. Um, the, the people that the veterans that uh, our frontline caregivers work for, uh, you know, they're, um, they're friends. Um, the folks that work in our home are driven by a sense of purpose and mission. Um, we uh, aren't and can't be as flexible as many other alternative uh, employment op- opportunities. And the frontline caregivers are there because they care about those veterans. And mm-hmm. so at every level, um, you, you, you just see how hard it is. And I'll give you a great example. I was in St. Louis yesterday. And, and a woman said, um, when can we get back to normal mm-hmm. so we can start taking care of the veterans? That's so hard to hear, you know. I mean, people want to take life back to normal for these these guys who I'm sure the, the patients there want this so badly. And yet here we that, are. We're, we're still stuck in this nightmare. That, that's right. And and those uh, out at Cameron and Warrensburg, I, I talked to a number of nurses and CNAs who are working uh, back-to-back 16-hour shifts. Mm. And the nature of how hard it is on on the front line particularly of the cnas and nurses is that in warrensburg and cameron and this comes out very clearly in the report we have 60 openings in those homes Hmm. 60 openings uh so what ends up happening it falls on the shoulders the very broad shoulders of the men and women who are there serving and um you can just see that they are you know they are worn out we need to take care of our frontline um healthcare workers just as much as we need to take care of our veterans mm-hmm. well you have such a difficult situation ahead of you and before we talk about some of the forward-looking things i do want to look back a, a bit to the past this report was it's it's very um it's a very good report it, it walks uh it contains a number of very specific failures and the causes of those failures and i'm wondering if you can walk us through just a couple that feel particularly important to you as, as we look back on how we got to this point yeah, sure. You know, first, I'd, I'd, I'd really be remiss uh, if I didn't thank uh, Armstrong Teasdale for the great work they did, uh, particularly the lead partner who was uh, Brian Caveney, who is a Marine infantry officer and an attorney. We chose Armstrong Te- Teasdale because they brought forward a combination of veterans and healthcare workers. So another lead partner uh, is a registered nurse and attorney and one of the top litigators uh, in the country. Hmm. We also recognize that um, while Armstrong Teasdale was, was very strong in their ability to do what they do, which is run investigations and uh, the, you know, take interviews and, and package them up uh, and present their findings, we, we really needed clinical expertise as well. So we also asked uh, Pathways, uh, Healthcare out of uh, out of Wisconsin to join our team. Mm-hmm. They did a tremendous amount of work on the clinical side, 
So, you know, what I would say going back to your, you know, your question. So, you know, there were, you know, there were five essential findings, a failure to analyze the data, a lapse of reporting and communication, a lack of a comprehensive understanding of, uh, of how, of how quickly the, the COVID had spread as it, as it broke out in our homes. Um, really a, a comprehensive PPE plan. And then finally, there was, um, you know, this really this recognition, a lot more focus needs to be put on the families. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what I would say that, you know, a couple of the ones that pop out, but also require a tremendous amount of context is, 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 the, is one, you know, the failure to really see the speed and rate at which COVID was getting into the home, especially in Cape. In March and April, May and June, July and August, we recognized an outbreak as being one case. And we successfully were able to use the protocols that we had in place mm-hmm. to, to keep it from spreading. The testing protocols that were in place, quite frankly, did not allow the real-time catching of what was happening in the homes. And let me provide just a short example is that the way that the that the PCR the kind of the deep testing works that you are tested and then two days later you get the results and we were testing everybody in the homes depending upon the schedule two to three times a week well if you're if you're from taking the test to getting the result is two days and you're positive as soon as you catch it, you quarantine. Well, as as that as that escalated, I think the failure was really to recognize when we had 15 positive cases, since we weren't able to real time see what was happening, mm-hmm. we were probably sitting on 30 or 40. Mm-hmm. And 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 now that we have the Binax now testing in place, we're testing everybody every day on the antigen basis. We, we can catch it much more quickly, but those tests were not available in the state of Missouri until the 31st of September. We received them on the 2nd of October. Hmm. So those could have made, I mean, those could have stopped this thing flat. At least what it would have done is it would have given you a better fighting chance. But what I would, what I would say and what we're observing, um, you know, real time that even since we've been doing daily antigen testing, much deeper, more thorough protocols, especially around PPE and use of N95 masks, it still can get in. Uh, and and it, it still can get in like it did in Mexico hmm. in, in mid-November because if, if, you, if, you, if you test someone, if you te- say you test someone on a PCR on a Monday, and you antigen test them on Monday and Tuesday, and they go positive for antigen on Wednesday, and the test from Monday comes back on Wednesday and it's positive, you've confirmed, but you still weren't able to catch it in those intervening 48 hours, and that's a tremendous problem, Mm -hmm. even with N95 masks, even with PPE protocols. Even, even, you know, the way that the density of the rooms are set up, the logistical footprint of the home, 
It's a very, very, very challenging problem. Yeah, and I think what really comes across so clearly in this report, uh, this law firm talked to 174 people. It's a, a staggering number of people. And you do get a sense of just how complex this problem is um, and just how tricky this this little coronavirus is. The fact that, you know, it takes a while to show up. The fact that asymptomatic people um, can be carriers and can be spreading it all over the place. Um, do you feel like it, had had you done everything right, you still could have stopped this? Um, you can never do everything right. Um, you can only you can only do the best you can with the best information that you have, with the with the with the best intentions that, that you've got. I I, I believe that even um, you know even with daily testing, this thing is persistent, and and you have to correlate how it gets into your home with what the case rate is in your community. Mm-hmm. It just, it has to, you have to correlate it to what's happening when caregivers are, are, are leaving, you know, they're going to Walmart, they're, 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 they're they got a shop. They, they, and quite frankly, the masking protocols that are happening around and how people are taking care of themselves in the in the surrounding community. Yeah, I mean, as this report makes clear, a lot of these counties uh, where these people are working didn't have masking. They ended up with very high rates, and, and that's a huge part of what happened here. Um, my guest today is Tim Noonan. He's the chairman of the Missouri Veterans Commission. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Tim. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. We're talking today about the fatal COVID-19 outbreak at the facilities run by the Missouri Veterans Commission. That outbreak has now killed a total of 142 residents. And my guest today is Tim Noonan. He's the chairman of the Missouri Veterans Commission, which just commissioned a very comprehensive report from Armstrong Teasdale that gets into what happened. Now, Tim, the report criticizes the commission for failing to engage with Fusion Cell. That's the state's, quote, collective response to COVID-19. It involves many high-ranking state officials and and these regular meetings. And it notes that the commission reported rising cases at a meeting on September 10th. No one asked any follow-up questions. I see, you know, many failures of the management of this crisis, but I have to ask, isn't this also a failure of the broader state government? There maybe wasn't urgency about this at a time when there really needed to be. You know, first, Sarah, I'd say that I want to be really clear for you and the listeners is that as the commission, you know, we, we own what happened here and we accept responsibility for what happened and we're going to fix what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we own it. The report was fair, but it was tough. And, um, you know, we've got work to do and, and we're going to re-earn the trust um, not only of, of our veterans and their families, but also our frontline workers. I think that there was a, a lot of 
a lot of things that were pointed out that we could have been a, done a better job around communication, a better job around, um, you know, really adding a little bit of judgment to, again, lots of uh, items that were flowing down, whether it was from CDC guidance or, or elsewhere. You know, go, going to this topic of, uh, of what was happening in the fusion cell, you know, the fusion cell is a wonderful attempt by the, the state to um, take disparate amounts and, uh, and, and types of information and get them and analyze them to be able to help organizations, whether it be us or the Department of Corrections or anyone else, um, you know, fight this thing. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I think that, you know, the, the one particular item was, you know, failure to analyze the data, you know, develop trigger points and then move out quickly. Um, I, I think a lot of people saw that data. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of people saw that data, and it and there was another uh, point uh, around uh, in in the lapse of reporting where you know the recommendation was really to look at the structure of the Missouri Veterans Commission. What's the limits of an independent commission that sits inside? Um, for essentially a holding company structure, which is the Department of Public Safety, mm-hmm. that reports to uh, a, essentially a board of directors, if you will, that is made up of volunteers, including myself. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that opens uh, uh, it, itself to a, a really good, hard, fact-based analysis about how do we get the Veterans Commission fit for purpose for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And we need to view this as a dress rehearsal because uh, we, we can't have another failure of, of, of not only leadership and management, but also imagination that things like this can happen. Mm-hmm. Now, as you mentioned, you're a volunteer. The The commission itself is is all volunteers. You do have an executive director, and the timing of this is, is tough in that you just got a new executive director in July. Does he still have your confidence? This, this obviously happened on his watch. Uh, but Paul Kirchhoff has my and the commission's full confidence. We trust Paul's leadership. Um, we, we, we trust uh, uh, his approach to fixing this. Um, now is not the time to uh, question Paul's leadership. Now is the time to give him the help he needs. Um, not only um, you know, kind of the great help that we got from the governor, like the Binax Now testing, uh, stock loads of PPE, et cetera, Mm-hmm. But but also help you know really kind of cut through some of this bureaucracy, um, make sure that we streamline reporting, that we've got line of sight and are listening to what's happening on the front lines, and and really you know give that management team the tools that they need um, to free up their time to work the problem, uh, as as opposed to you know make charts and 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 move data around. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's one of the things that we heard from from the front line is that there were just so many, so much changing guidance, so much changing guidance, but but we've got to we've got to have a little bit more trust in the front line for for them to be able to make decisions, you know, you know, right there on the 
you know, on the edge of, of what's happening. So as you mentioned, um, this commission is technically under DPS, but as the, that's the Department of Public Safety. But as the report makes clear, uh, public safety isn't involved in running you. That's more just a, a structural thing. Do you think it makes sense for you to continue to be more of an independent type agency under their umbrella? Or would it make sense to be under a state agency that's maybe more aligned, the Department of Health and Human Services, say? I think it's a great question. I, I, I don't... Um, I don't, I don't have a hypothesis one way or another. I, I think that that would be something that we would get through through analyzing um, lots and di- different factors. You know, one one that I would would point out though is that you know in our homes, just like in any business anywhere, you know the war is for talent. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to take care of your people, and the people take care of the mission. The veterans are our mission we got to take care of our people. The competition for our people is every other assisted living, skilled nursing care, hospital that's in any geographic area anywhere. And if you if you look real hard, well, you don't have to look real hard. As a nation, we're down about a million CNAs than we, that we need to run facilities like the Missouri Veterans Commission. Mm-hmm. So this is really a workforce development issue um, and, and then we have to be able to compete for talent. Um, and we got to pay people right. We got to put the right incentives in place. We have to have tools for managers to be really agile, to be able to hire uh, in their market the way they need it. I, uh, so, so I don't know. I don't know if, if there's a better structure, but we're going to look at it. Um, I read a, a news story back before uh, the coronavirus even reared its head. You guys were looking at 80% staff turnover then, and I'm sure that's only been exacerbated by this this terrible situation that you're in and, and everybody else is in. Do you have enough money coming from the state budget to allow you to, to compete in the way that, that you clearly understand is necessary in order to get the right workers for, for these homes? Well, interestingly, we get very little money from the state. Uh, most of the, the funds that we get to run our homes come through a combination of uh, residents paying a portion and the Veterans Administration paying another portion. And then based upon your disability, we get more money. As you can imagine, since our census is down, we have not allowed uh, taken new veterans into our homes since March. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got a tremendous amount of fixed costs, a tremendous amount of, of, of indirect costs. And from a sources point of view, and, and a lot more costs to manage COVID, and from a sources, sources point of view, we're, we're, down, we're down revenue. We also, for capital improvement, receive money from something called the uh, Veterans uh, Capital Fund that is from admission to the... Uh, uh, gambling establishments in the state. Mm. Well, with people not going to the gambling boats, we're down on that money as well. There's a third new source of money, which is medicinal marijuana amendment 14 in, in the state that created something called the Missouri veterans health and welfare fund. And, uh, we're working with, uh, the governor's office with, uh, with the legislature to make sure that we have a solid, sound, transparent process for making sure that money gets to the Veterans Commission, which is which was the intent of the amendment. 
Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, And in our final minutes here, I want to bring it back to the residents of these homes. I know they're so important to you. And and this report is just so heart-wrenching to read in some cases. There were some quotes in here from family members and and from um, other loved ones saying, the veterans are alive but not living. Family members describe their loved ones as, quote, dying on the vine and being isolated like a prisoner who's done terrible crimes. It must have been so hard to read that. It's very hard to read it. Um, you know, if, if you, you know, one of the metrics of merit in, in running a, a, a place like we do is uh, the ability to, to thrive and, and failure to thrive is considered a leading cause of, of, uh, of, of losing veterans. We've got we've to return and create meaning uh, and a pathway for our veterans to thrive. And that goes right through taking care of our frontline workers. Mm-hmm. You know, as I left the front, as I left seeing those guys, I was reminded of this Arthur Ashe quote that said, true heroism is unremarkably sober, very undramatic. It's not the urge to surpass all others at whatever cost but the urge to serve others at whatever cost. And, and what I saw in the front line is this urge to serve our veterans at whatever cost. And we've got to realize that, that, that those folks were overwhelmed by this incredibly complex, unrelenting um, virus. Uh, and, and when we're going to, we're going to own, we're going to own the, uh, the failures in the report, and we're going to fix them and take care of our front line and take care of our veterans. Tim, in our final 30 seconds here, I just am hoping there's a ray of hope here. Do you expect that uh, the residents of this facility and also the workers are, could be vaccinated within, say, a matter of weeks? Does that seem like a real possibility at this point? Yes, yes. We we have made sure that we're at, at our appropriate place in line, if not a few uh, steps up. Um, to get vaccinations. And look, at we can't make vaccinations a prerequisite of employment, but I talked to every one of the homes and I said, look, at this is three things. This is leadership, education, and culture. We, we, we've got to create a, a meaning to get the vaccine. We've got to understand the, the pros and the cons. And then we have to view it as, as what we do on a team to take care of each other. And, and I, I feel very confident that at the individual level that people are going to make great decisions about taking the vaccine. I know I'm going to take it and, and, all, and everybody, everybody on the leadership team is going to take it. Well, Tim Noonan, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, sir. I appreciate your time. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.